Well, I'm glad that you um, are, are thinking about these things. My hope is that you would pray through some of these issues. Uh, if, if you're married, talk to your spouse about these issues. Because what we'll find is, I think, you know, all of our lives, while these, there, there are significant principles that can be applied, the way that they are contextualized or applied in your context is going to look very particular. So the way that work and rest plays itself out in my life is not going to look the same as it, as it looks in your life. So these things have got to be brought before the Lord by you and your, your spouse, by your family. And you have to pray through these things and work through these things together. Today I want to talk about heavy lifting. Okay, heavy lifting. And we're not talking Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like this. We're talking about the labor of work, the toil of work, the pain of work. Today we, we discover in light of that beautiful picture that we saw yesterday about how God has created the world, how God has designed everything, we discover what went wrong, what went wrong. And this is a powerful, I think, lesson for us all to learn. Now, we all have a desire to find a job, and we talked a little bit about this last night, a, a, a job or a set of jobs that is meaningful and satisfying where we have this sense and this feeling and this fire that, oh, wow, I was made for this. I was made to do this. This fits who I am. Unfortunately, for many of us, that sense of work is far from us. In all truth, work as we experience it in the day-to-day -day can be dehumanizing, disappointing. It can be doldrums, the pits. It's frustrating, not fulfilling. Work is something that we might do to pay the bills or care for our children. But let's be honest, it's not something that we enjoy. The work is tedious. The work is mind-numbing. You deal with irritating people day in and day out. Customers who you have to talk to, but they don't appreciate what you're doing. And so they're rude and inconsiderate. And so you find yourself going, oh, why am I doing this? Well, what I actually want to say is that experience, while all too common, has an origin. And today we're going to explore that origin. So well, how should we uh, respond to this? Well, Forbes magazine, uh, there's, there's uh, as you know, at Forbes magazine, they have these uh, work series um, sets of articles, and one, uh, particularly by Paul Brown, Leonard Schlesinger, and Charles Kiefer, uh, they entitle uh, this article, Why Work Does Not Have to Be Fulfilling. That's the title of the article, Why Work Does Not Have to Be Fulfilling. In the article, they go on to say, hey, look, works, uh, jobs that actually fulfill us are few and far between. They don't grow on trees, so stop looking for one, especially in this economy, if you've got a job, enjoy it. What you should st stop doing is complaining about how bad your, your job is. Change your attitude and realize, look, this is work. I get a paycheck, that's good enough. And what they actually say is, 
don't try and find fulfillment in your in your job <laughs> find fulfillment somewhere else but don't lose your job they, they say they say a lot of fun things in the article they say they say uh find fulfillment when you uh come home and you're so frustrated that you just start throwing pots and pans at the wall right if that's what it takes find fulfillment there now that's a very practical uh lesson and a practical word of advice but as a christian i just couldn't help but read that and say huh is that really the best response i want to say no too now there's some good kind of practical advice there that we can say okay you know work's not always going to be fulfilling i was talking about this with a colleague of mine at school he's a former marine sniper right he can kill you with a comb Or one finger, you know, and I'm not kidding. You know, that's the way he's trained. I can kill you with a comb. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know what to say to you right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm certainly not going to say show me, prove it. You know? <laughs> but we were talking about this, and he said, you know, after Vietnam, you know what happened is I, I, I obviously, I have. I, he was not ready to really acclimate back into the you know normal world. So he said after he got out of Vietnam, he, what he did is he, he got a job in a vet clinic. And he said, my job was scooping poop. And he said, you know, the, 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 the job was horrible. Smelly poop all day. But he said, you know, even there, it was a real gift and it was fulfilling. I'm like, really? How? He's like, well, for me, it's what I needed to reacclimate into society. And I had good godly men that I worked for, and I had good conversations with them, and they kind of eased me back into life. And, you know, here's a, here's a guy who, you know, is extremely trained, spending all those years fighting and, and doing very technical work. And then he comes back and he's scooping poop. And yet even that can be a, a grace from God, right? And so as a Christian, I want to look at my colleague and say, yeah, maybe even the menial tasks can be, you can find a sense of fulfillment. But there's, there's never going to be a job that is perfectly fulfilling. We're always going to have those aspects that are just, if I can use this uh, metaphor, it's just a whip. I mean, it's just a beatdown, right? So we've got to get utopia out of our minds. We're not in the garden anymore, right? But we've got to take a close look and a clear eye on finding the right kind of fulfillment in work. Maybe all that, that, that we should say is what this Forbes article says, but I don't think so. I want to know why work can be both glorious and doldrums. I think we should explore this together. The way that we explore it is by looking at Genesis, uh, Genesis 3. There we discover what has gone wrong. So I want to read the text for us and make some observations and then walk us through this idea of heavy lifting. Look at Genesis 3. And I want to begin, uh, I, we all know this, this story, don't we? 
So it's Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent who's more crafty than any of the other animals in the field. And notice that everybody thinks that, you know, it's Satan. The Bible is very clear. It's a serpent. And what is a serpent? A serpent is a created thing, right? It's a creature that God told uh, that, uh, uh, one of those creatures that God said to, to, Abr- uh, to um, Adam in Genesis. <laughs> sorry, it's early. Genesis 2. Name that thing. Exercise dominion over that thing. What we see in Genesis 3 is this created thing, this serpent thing, this, this, this animal, seems to be exercising dominion over the man and the woman. And that's exactly what's happening. The roles are switched. The serpent is exercising authority and dominion, tempting Eve and Adam. And of course, you know the story. Eve eats the apple, then gives it, or the fig, or whatever it is, and gives it to Adam. They both eat. They realize that they are naked, and then they become ashamed, and they sow fig leaves to cover themselves. They hear God in the garden. He says, where are you? You know, as if God doesn't know. He knows exactly where they are. The question exposes the deep sinfulness of Adam and Eve. And so what God does is then he pronounces a curse. And that's where I want us to pick up on Genesis 3.14. To the serpent, God says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your, your pain in childbearing, and your pa- in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles, It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verses 14 all the way to 19 and 20, you find this this passage. It is the curse as a result of sin. Now, we all know that this is what happened, right? This is the fall technically speaking, in theological speak. But the question that arises is, what does this passage mean for our work in our workplace? Well, it leads to some really bad things. Let us, let's walk through the next few chapters of Genesis to, to flesh out exactly what I mean. <clears throat> the fall means for work a, a, a whole bunch of really negative pictures negative realities look at genesis 4 of course we know the story of genesis 4 this is the story of cain and abel now what happens with cain and abel abel brings the produce from the, uh uh you know uh, sorry the, the the animal he's a shark uh, like a shepherd and he brings this animal sacrifices it so the part 
of the work of his hands, shepherding, he sacrifices and gives it as an offering to God, and God likes it. But Cain, on the other hand, he's a farmer, doing what God told him to do, tending the fields of the earth. He takes the work of his hands and gives it. And God is pleased with Abel's offering. God is not pleased with Cain's offering. Now, God tries to bring Cain around, right? Hey, sin is crouching at your door. Don't let him in. But what happens is the working world and the products of the working world don't become a, a, a source of joy and harmony and, oh, we're imaging God. It becomes a source of competition, anger, jealousy. At the end of the day, Abel's work, his offering is accepted, and Cain's is not. As a result, out of jealousy, anger, frustration, what does Cain do? He murders Abel. He murders Abel. Now, how does this relate to work? It shows an example of how work can lead, and, and what God does with our work, can lead to extraordinary jealousy, and even in this case, death. Look at later on in Genesis 4. <clears throat> later on in Genesis 4, we have a very interesting, different kind of work. Not just uh, shepherding or farming. When you have in verses 17 and following, you have a lineage. And I'll begin in verse 22. Zillah bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Verse 23. And Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, why do I bring this section up? Because this is the first poem created after the fall. Now think about this. It's a very different kind of work. But in terms of creative work, this is poetry. And as poets will tell you, poetry is work, right? What's the first poem uttered after the fall? A curse of revenge. This statement after the fall in Genesis 3 is a curse that's full of death, murder, revenge. Poetry is fashioned for curse, not blessing. So you have frustration and competition with Adam and, and uh, or uh, Cain and Abel. Cain uh, leads to murder, murder, a different kind of work. Poetry, what we have after the fall, is poetry is, is twisted for revenge, for curse, to celebrate murder. And then one we're more familiar with, perhaps, Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, the first great building project in human society after the construction of the ark. So God calls Noah to build this ark. Noah works in faithfulness to God, creates the ark and the world, uh, at least the animals, uh, land animals, um, and humans are saved. So the work of his hand leads to a blessing of the world, right? That's, that's Noah. The next major building project that we have after the ark Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. 
the first great building project in human society where all, not just a man and his family, but all of the people of the world come together and they say, ah, we've got to build something. What do they build? They build a huge tower, an ancient skyscraper. Could you imagine the manpower and the effort? Think about the engineering of this project. How many engineers worked on this? How many resource managers decided, all right, this is where we're going to get this. The bricks are going to come from here. The straw is going to come from here. We need to organize the labor groups. Think about the job. The first ancient skyscraper. But what was the goal of this work? To be like God. To rival God. The work of one's hands, the hands of humanity, is used to rival their maker. It's no wonder that the prophets over and over again talk about work as a way to idolatry. What we see in just these three instances, and we can keep going through the rest of the Old Testament, is after the fall, there's a dark side to the story of work. It leads to rivalry, jealousy, covetousness. It can lead to murder. It can lead to beautiful poetry, beautiful things, things that were meant for blessing are used to pronounce curse and abuse. And in Genesis 11, the great human building project can be used to fashion idolatry and rival God himself. The prophets over and over and over again warn us of the dangers of work. In fact, when you look at some of the Psalms, the Psalms say quite simply this, Human beings make idols, but those who make idols make things with eyes, but they can't see. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands that can't feel and feet that can't walk. But then the psalmist will say something else. Those who make idols become like them. Deaf, dumb mute lifeless the prophets will go on to say things like wealthy folk who get rich in their jobs working for gain often do so at the expense of their neighbors the eighth century prophets this is one of their favorite critiques you see this uh probably most clearly in Isaiah chapter 5, but it's found in Micah and Amos and Hosea. It looks as though there are some wealthy folk who do their work, right, and get rich, but they do so on the backs of the poor in society. Work has been perverted. It's not been uh, used for the thriving of all, but just the gain of some. So these wealthy folk who have worked for gain often defraud their neighbor, And in so doing, rebel against their God. In their ease and luxury, oftentimes the the, the Bible describes this as people who think they are in high and lofty places, God warns that work will be brought low. What can we say about this story of the dark side of work? Well, the Bible reminds us that the fall breaks even work 
So although work itself is part of what it means to be human, as we've discussed this morning, although it's designed by God, the reality is human beings have a problem. And the problem is that they twist work for their own ends. If we're not careful, however, we can recognize this dark side of work. And this short survey through scripture can lead us, in fact, to some unhealthy and I would even say unbiblical understandings of work. And let me just give you two. All right. Here's the first one. One such understanding would say this, and maybe some of you in this room have this idea. The idea is quite simply this. Number one, at the fall, God gave us work. So that work is a bad thing. Work is part of a fallen world. After all, look at what it says in Genesis uh, 3.15, right? Or 3... Seventeen. <clears throat> Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you die. Look. Work's bad. It's part of the curse. After all, when God says this curse to Adam, what he's saying is, Adam would work hard. Frustration will be the order of the day. The land of thorns and thistles is our fate. Work. Huh. Good God, y'all. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Right? This is the idea that after the fall, work is a curse, not a blessing. And some of us in this room, let's just be honest, might have this view. Why is work unfulfilling? Real simple. Part of the fall. The second view that might, uh, we might gain from this overview of Scripture, I mean, look, it's all bad, and God's cursing the people who make idols and the power of Babel. I mean, it's just bad. The second view is at the fall, we see that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Literally, it's like the Titanic. The world we live in is the Titanic going down to the depths. So I don't want to worry about my work. I got more important things to do. I don't want to rearrange the deck chairs on a sinking ship. Work's part of those deck chairs. I'm going to do important things. So while the ship goes down, I'm not going to fiddle with that chair and that chair. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell others about Jesus. And what the idea is, I'm going to tell them about Jesus, so what we can do, he's got a lifeboat over there, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell them about Jesus, we're going to grab him, and we're going to get out of this world, and we're going to jump on his lifeboat and get out of here alive. So this kind of thought is, work is part of the brokenness of the world, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, our goal is to get as many people out of here, so God doesn't care about your work, get on with serious stuff, evangelism. What one scholar calls this is lifeboat theology. In a sinking world, God's given us the lifeboat, the gospel. All he really cares about is how many souls you win. In this first view, 
as I've said, the work that we experience is part of a broken world. And so our frustrations are not with work, it's just with sin. It's, sin is part of the, the broken world. Workplace is bad because work is a curse. In the second view, the only thing that matters to God is evangelism and spiritual things, right? Everything else doesn't matter. So let's get our priorities straight. So we might feel like almost intuitively, when I've had these kinds of conversations with folks in the past, sometimes this is the response I get. Look, you know, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to be an evangelist because that's all that really matters anyway. What you're doing, what you're doing does not matter. What I'm doing matters because God has called me to be an evangelist. So we've created this idea that the world's sinking, the only thing that matters is the spiritual jobs. Well, neither view is true to the biblical portrait. In even Genesis 3, we don't have a lifeboat theology present in the teaching on the fall, nor do we have a curse of work teaching present in this uh, discussion of this passage from the, on the fall. Rather, what do we see? We see this, our lives and our work remain structurally good because it's part of God's world, his created order. However, work, like our lives, has been endlessly broken and complicated because of sin. Let me say this again. Our lives and our work is structurally good because it's part of God's created order. It's part of his world. But work, like our lives, has been endlessly broken and complicated by sin. The world you live in is good still. The work that God has ordained us to do, whatever the high to the low job, is structurally good because God has made us to be workers. But sin has broken and complicated both our lives and our work. So let me walk you through why that's the case. Look at Genesis 3, 14 to 19 in particular once again. Verse 14, when God speaks to the serpent, he says this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. God doesn't obliterate the serpent. He could have just gone, but he doesn't. Why? The serpent, like the beasts of the field, are still part of God's creation. Verse 15. This is taken further, however, to show that there's rivalry. Rivalry. And this serpent is going to have a seed, and the woman is going to have a seed, and they're going to be at conflict from here on out. The serpent, remember I said the serpent bucks his creation design. The serpent tries to dominate uh, the uh, woman and the man. Remember that? So he is usurping God's creational design for him, right? He's not going to stop doing that. 
In fact, he's, if, you know, we understand who this serpent is, this is Satan. Satan is always going to try and dominate human beings. Destroy. That goes against God's creation design. But what God says here in this promise is that there's going to there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But what's going to happen is while the serpent bites at the woman's heel, the woman, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. In other words, there's going to be a final blow against the battle. And the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent. In other words, and it's not insignificant because the seed of the woman will exercise dominion over the serpent. Okay. So you have complication, but the, the, the categories of created order are basically the same. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your, your pain in, in childbearing, and then you keep, keep going on. Now, this is interesting because is the creational command to be fruitful and multiply done away with? No, it's complicated because of sin. They will multiply, but in pain. See, creational order is still good. It's complicated because of sin. Further, the one flesh union you see at the end of Genesis 2, right? This one flesh union of mutuality that we find in Genesis 2 describing marriage, you see that twisted to where there's, there's uh, unhealthy subjugation of the man over the woman in an unhealthy and domineering kind of way. And there's codependency on the part of the woman. Unhealthy. So still, is marriage a creational good? Is it still part of God's created order? Yes. However, in the context of this curse, that can be taken in terribly difficult ways. It's complicated because of sin. And then now we get to the emphasis on work. Human beings are still commanded to till and to tend the soil. It's still, Genesis 2.15, an aspect of worship. What it means to be human, living before God, quorum Deo, loving God, right? But look at the complication. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the... By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So what we see is all the blessings of God from creation are affirmed. Be fruitful, multiply. You're still going to bear children. Rule, subdue, tend, till. You're still going to do hard work. But the blessings of God are complicated because of sin. We bear children, but in pain. We do hard work, but the land is not naturally receptive to our cultivating work. The land fights with us. It's a land of thorns and thistles. Further, the work is not just fulfilling work, even though it's you know, hard work. It's by the sweat of your brow. It's a picture of painful, egregious, difficult toil. Just to eat bread. And then finally, we see that work 
and eating the of the fruit of the tree of of, of the knowledge of uh, life doesn't just produce uh, uh, you know, joy and life and abundance. You know what happens is in the curse, humans die. You work, but you die. In essence, a lot of the blessings that we find in creation are just simply complicated, distorted, or marred because of sin. In short, God's world is still good. And that means for you and me, the world that we experience today is still good. We're not on the Titanic. But it's broken by sin. The real reality is work is still good because it's part of God's creation design. It's part of what we are as human beings, workers. But because of sin, our work is frustrated, complicated, broken, marred, distorted by sin in countless ways. In what ways? Ways that we've talked about in Genesis 4, Genesis 11, and in some of the prophetic critiques. The world and work is structurally good but affected by sin. So what we see is this curse view of the wor- of work view won't work at all. When we look at it, the Old and New Testaments, work is affirmed as God's still good gift. When you look at Jesus and his teaching, for instance, we find Jesus immersed in everyday life and in the problems of working people. Think about his parables. You remember Jesus' parables, right? You know one of the ways that scholars describe Jesus' parables? Earthy and having to do with the working world. The apostles were mainly of humble background. They returned to their work for some periods of time, even after being called by Jesus. Jesus went with them on fishing trips. So Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Jesus was a carpenter. For all except for the last three years of his life. While on earth, Jesus probably spent more time sawing wood than he did preaching. His parables dealt with sowers, vineyard laborers, harvesters, house builders, swine tenders, housekeepers. He illustrated the kingdom of God by making us think of work. The kingdom of God is like leaven working through dough. The kingdom of God is like a vineyard. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? Paul worked with his own two hands, so not to be a burden to the church. He's a tent maker. He worked to support others and urge this practice on other Christians. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10. Uh, we, one of our brothers here uh, last night mentioned uh, the advice to slaves. They should work willingly as slaves for Christ. But look, you can get your freedom by all means, right? The idea, though, that the slaves should work willingly as doing their work under the Lord illustrates the same theme. The work is still valuable and good. Even slave labor could be potential service to the Lord on par with Paul's own work. Similarly, his declaration, and this is the most amazing statement in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. So if you have your, your Bible turned there, Paul says this, 
if anyone does not work, let him not eat. <laughs> now, this doesn't show Paul being a jerk or callous towards believers. Or he doesn't care about people who can't support themselves. That's not his viewpoint at all. Uh, his programs for deacons, for instance, um, is, is an example of how he likes to care for those in need. Collections, the, Paul's collection is really important for how he deals with the poor in, in the society and the church. And the idea of the early church sharing goods and having all things in common it illustrates this point. So Paul isn't just being a callous jerk. Let them deal with themselves, you know. If they don't work, don't eat. Anybody who doesn't have a job, yeah, get them out of here. It's not what Paul's saying, right? What Paul is saying on it, it, what Paul is saying is he's not focusing on those who don't have work, but what those who actually could work but refuse to do so. He, they didn't want to share in the burdens of others. Why? Well, this is a letter uh, directed to the Thessalonian Christians, and apparently, some of these Thessalonians were very concerned about the last days. They were so concerned about Jesus' second coming that what they did is they got themselves in a holy huddle and just sat and waited. They thought they were too spiritual to be wor worried with earthly things. We're dealing with spiritual things, the second coming of the Lord. Paul's response edges on sarcasm, doesn't it? Hey, those who don't want to work, don't let them eat. He implies that if they're so spiritual they don't need work, they must be so spiritual they don't need food either. So a life devoid of work, and also in Paul's uh, letters and language, uh, a life devoid of uh, 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 or too filled with pleasure on either extreme is not healthy. <clears throat> what Paul sees is quite clearly Work is part of life. Even for those who are waiting for the coming of Christ, work is part of life. So we see in the Old Testament, work is affirmed. You think about the craftsmen who uh, build the temple. We think about, I've already mentioned Noah and the ark. Work is still part of what it means to be human in a fallen world. But work is broken in countless ways. How will work look in the future? This is a healthy question to ask. Did the fall destroy work? And once Jesus comes back, all we're going to be doing is like have a Gaither revival in heaven or maybe it's going to be like a one-day rally in heaven. And all we see, do is sing praise songs. And that's, that's what we do in New Heavens, New Earth. Actually, Isaiah 60 gives us a, a rather different picture. Turning your Bible to Isaiah 60. So this is a picture in Isaiah 60 of the future glory of God's people, the glory of Zion. That is, later on in chapter 64, uh, 65, Zion is described as new heavens, new earth. Okay, so this is really important. Look at chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, Thick darkness and, and thick darkness to peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, Zion, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, 
and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth, look at this, the wealth of nations has come to you. And then look at the description of what's coming into Zion. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheva will come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news and praises of the Lord. Gold and frankincense and praises of the Lord. The flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. I will beautify my beautiful house. Look at verse 10. Sorry, sorry, just uh, verse 9. For the coastland shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first. To bring your children from afar. Their silver and their gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel. Because he has made you beautiful. Look at verse 11. Your gate shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of nations with their kings led in procession. Now, if this is a picture, which I think it is, of new heavens, new earth, our future hope, right? What's the picture that God wants us to see? God wants us to see that in his restored world, it's not a one-day rally, you know, or a Gaither homecoming, right? As great as those are, we find that the nations are bringing their work and laying them before God. The ships of Tarshish first, laden down. So Spain, remember where Tarshish, where Jonah went to go, right? Spain. So the work of Spain is going to be loaded onto ships and carried across the sea to give it to God. The kings of the earth will bring all of their goods, the work of their hands, and lay it before the king of the world. What's the picture here? God created the world good. Work is a creational good. It's been broken and marred by sin. And yet, even in the future, work is going to be part of life. Work is not a curse in the sense that it has no value. The fall has affected our work, but work is not the effect of the fall. This means, practically speaking, for you and for me, your work and mine is good but broken in oh so many ways. What about this lifeboat theology view? This simply will not work, will it? When we look at the Old and New Testaments, work is something that we see affirmed in the world today, but also affirmed in the new heavens and the new earth. So the goal is not to get out of this world alive. We're going to do that if we accept Christ. But Work means more than that, doesn't it? Look at Colossians chapter 3, 
verse 17, in fact, to get a glimpse of what I'm talking about. This is a picture in chapter 3 of Paul's description of new creation people. People who have been raised with Christ. What does their life look like? Is their life just evangelism going here and there? Well, partly. But look at verse 12. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do everything, whether in word or deed. That's a pretty comprehensive idea, isn't it? He'll go on to say, and this is a foretaste of glory divine for tomorrow, right? He'll go on to say in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. What does this mean for you and me? Listen, if you're a businessman, your work matters to God. The only people that matter aren't, you know, Billy Graham. Your work matters to God because God has made you a new creation. The fall has affected you and your workplace. But as I said last night, you are in holy orders. In everything you do and I do, we are called to work heartily as for the Lord. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to close by, by just saying, look, this this is very important. The fall has not destroyed who we are. It's marred who we are. Work is messed up because of sin. And what I'd like to do now is turn to the, this very question. How, quite specifically, has the fall affected you in your work or perhaps your workplace? I'm going to give you seven uh examples of what i'm talking about okay but these are just examples things that i've seen you see different aspects where the fall impacts your work in your workplace okay so how does the fall affect us if the fall is part of our world right and it impacts work but it doesn't you know work isn't a curse and we're not the only thing that matters is evangelism that's none of that actually is accurate then how does the fall affect us? Well, here's number one. The fall oftentimes means that when we do our work, we have a tendency to replace God with our work. In short, our work can become our God. This can happen in overt ways. But I think for folks in the church, it happens in far much more subtle ways. 
And the subtle way is where workplace becomes my place. God is Sunday, Wednesday, quiet times. God is when I pray over my meals. But my job, that's my business. I think the w- that's the way it plays out in the church quite often. This is a subtle idolatry. It's not recognizing that the fall and sin infects even where you work, how you conceive about uh, conceive your job. And so God is you've effectively shut the door behind God on your way into your office. That's idolatry. Making work. Your God, at least functionally, when you get in there. The second way that the fall affects us, overworking. We talked about this last night. Overworking. This can be closely tied up with number one, where overwork is a kind of way where instead of finding our contentment in God and who Christ has made us to be, work becomes the way where we scratch that itch. Our contentment, our identity, our sense of worth, Our joy, our value as a man is in our work, not in God. And so we overwork because, frankly, it scratches that itch and feeds that ego. That is a form of idolatry as well. Here's the other one, though. Overworking or underworking. Now, I've seen this, and you probably have too. Hey, look, brother, this doesn't matter. You know, what really matters is that I'm a good Christian man, right? This is just work. Let's let's not take this so serious. Look, I've shared Christ with this guy. That's what's serious. This is just work. You know what that is? That's mediocrity. We're going to talk about this in this next hour. But is that pleasing to God, underworking? I would say no, it's not. That's a a way that the, the, the fall has affected us. Underworking is just as displeasing to God as overworking. Number three, and I've mentioned this before, finding fulfillment in work rather than Jesus. So I'll move forward. Number four, in our job we can find our desire for our glory rather than God's fame. This is an essential act of forgetfulness. If our identity as human beings is to be workers under the authority of God. Even in your workplace, your, the name that should be on the door really is not you. It's the Lord. You work for someone else. So this is where this idea of holy orders really does come into play. You are under holy orders at the workplace, but that means that God is your authority, your king. You do your stuff for him. Work as unto the Lord in everything you put your hands to. But for us, how many times have we seen or have we, have we had the experience, I certainly have, where what I want people to think is I want them to think good of me. I want my employees, my students, to think good of me. This is a subtle sin but a sin nonetheless. My goal and your goal in our jobs 
is to proclaim the fame of Jesus. And that certainly means sharing Christ. But that means how we work. The kind of job that we do. Our ethical life. Our morals. What we will do. What we won't do. Even if it costs our, us our job. Our desire is to honor and glorify God rather than ourselves. Number five. The fall affects us with pride. We don't want to do tasks that are below us. Pride. I won't do the menial tasks. I'm above that. Can I just say, very sensitively, this happens in academics quite a bit. Uh, you're the uh, younger junior professor. Can you go get me the coffee? I remember I was at a conference in Cambridge one year where um, I'm sitting, and it was at, at uh, this, this room, and it was very hot in the room, right? Very hot in the room. And there's a very well-known scholar in front of me who's close to the window, and he keeps looking, and I'm, he can see me because we're like this, right? And he's given a paper already, very famous scholar. And he, everybody's just sweltering, but nobody's getting up. And I was kind of enjoying the paper that was going on. Well, I see him start to look over at me and look at the window. Look over at me, look at the window. Look over at me, look at the window. Right? Well, I'm not going to do anything because I'm sitting right here, right? I'm not near the window. He's right in front of the window. Finally, he turns to me and says, are you Go get the window and open it. I'm not going to do a menial task because it's below me. It's not my job. Now, that's a silly example. But what, did I do it? Yeah. <laughs> I did it. Yeah. Of course I did it. It's an awkward position. This guy's talking. What am I going to do? So, I, no, I'm not going to do it, you senior scholar. But the point is quite simply this, the fall, it, it, it tends to have this effect where our sin inflates our ego and our pride. Instead of pitching in to get a job done and get it right, we start doing this thing, this weird ego thing, where we, we, we have this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, no, it's not my job, it's below me, menial tasks you won't do. Number six, unhealthy work environment. Unhealthy work environments quite often are a result of numbers one to five being in full force in the workplace. Now, some of this, if you are a, uh, you know, you're a, you're a leader in your organization, you can set the agenda. You can set the, the, the thermometer, right? But for most of us, you're at the mercy of others. You live in an unhealthy work environment. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But frankly speaking, the fall has affected our environment uh, in, in the workplace. And so we live in this place of tension and contention, of competitiveness, of dog-eat-dog -dog world. And it's unhealthy. I have a friend who works at another institution. 
and his institution, although it's a Christian school, is a profoundly unhealthy workplace. Backbiting, competition, innuendo, slander is the order of the day. The tyranny of the immediate that we just talked about is part of life every single day. Well, a new professor was stuck in the middle of it to try and manage it. I, I, I talked with this, uh, my, my friend, and uh, he, he, he informed me that that new professor who's been at this job in this swirling environment for about six months was carried away on a stretcher last week. Why? Stress and a heart attack. Unhealthy work environments reflect the brokenness of our, of our world. And we can talk about strategies of dealing with that if you're on the inside and you can't control it, right? But I also want us to think very carefully for those of us who own our own businesses or who are, who are, who are over people, set the temperature in the right way. Create a healthy environment that's pleasing to God. And then seven, I mentioned this last night, unsocial. Workplace and you as a human uh, are no longer valued, right? The workplace can be profoundly unsocial. Work is inherently social. Listen to how John Calvin describes it. John Calvin describes work as a kind of trade or commerce. He says it this way. It's not enough when one can say, oh, I work, I have my trade, I set the pace. That's not enough. For one must be concerned whether it's good and profitable to the community. And if it's able to serve our neighbors. And this is why we're compared to members of a body. The life of the godly is justly compared to trading. For they ought naturally to exchange and barter with one another in order to main maintain intercourse what's the point that he's making work is inherently social both within the workplace and with those that we serve our customers unsocial workplaces we would call that in the business world bad customer service right you have bad customer service you're unsocial but within the workplace as well uh, the workplace can be profoundly unsocial where human beings are reduced to non-entities things that i can plug in and pull out like those old telephone wires this is an effect of the fall as well now these are some general examples in our discussion why don't we take about a, uh, a five ten minute break and then in our discussion what i'd like for us to do is i'd like to to, to talk together about how does the fall affect your work workplace how does sin permeate your workplace or your own life okay so why don't we take about a, a, a 10 minute break and we'll come back and talk about that together okay